0: I'm Luke. I'm John. We need to talk, John.
1: Is this about the thing I did when I slept on your sofa?
0: Uh no, we're talking about chat shows.
1: Oh, I see, yeah, we need to talk, I see.
0: Hang on, what did you do when you slept on my sofa?
1: Well, first of all, I took a very large... They spent their whole lives watching TV. Now they're sharing
2: their opinions with you. Cos now they want to have some fun. We're the channel that is all brand new. Yeah, Without further ado, don't choose the shows that you want to view It's time to change the channel to Luke and John Cracky TV. Luke and John Cracky TV
0: At least that explains why I kept finding pumpkin seeds in my flat for days.
1: Uh, Welcome to Cracking TV. We're Luke and John and we're on a mission to create the dream schedule for our own network, Cracking TV.
0: Each episode we'll be talking about classic shows from a particular genre, picking one to fill a slot in our schedule.
1: We'll be taking it in turns to be the Commissioner and the Pitcher. The Pitcher will bring a number of shows in the hope of scoring that big commission.
0: However, the Commissioner has already got a first-rate show in mind. The Pitcher desperately wants one of his shows to win and avoid the embarrassment of being thrown out of the Commissioner's office.
1: This week, I'm the Commissioner. Luke, thanks for coming in. I've asked you to pitch a chat show, so please find me a host who will infuse my slot with style and panache.
0: So you're looking for a convivial but conventional celebrity chat show for Cracking TV?
1: Conventional, yes, please. For this commission, I'm not looking for a comedy chat show, so no Mrs Merton, Dame Edna, Kumars, not even a Clive Anderson. As good as those shows were, we can look at them some other time.
0: Okay. But before we get into the pitches, I think we should look at how the TV chat show came to be. Okay. So the chat show format originated in the United States as late night shows. Yeah. These US shows have evolved in a different way to the shows we're looking at today, being essentially variety shows with comedy and chat. Yeah. But the early US late night shows heavily influenced the UK shows we are looking at today. Right. The world's first ever late-night comedy variety show was Broadway Open House, broadcast live every weeknight on the NBC network at 11pm between May 1950 and August 1951. Stay up late, the Americans, don't they, watching TV? They really do. The show was hosted by a variety of different comedians, including Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, and while it was mainly a comedy variety show, it did feature guests and chat. Uh Uh-huh. After the show was axed, Steve Allen created a variety talk show on NBC's New York station. Right. And this transferred to the network on September the 27th, 1954, as The Tonight Show. And the world's first TV chat show proper was born. Very famous Tonight Show, of course. A proper juggernaut. Absolutely. Of course, it's still running today. Yeah. On that very first show, Allen said, This is tonight, and I can't think of too much to tell you about it. Except I want to give you the bad news first. This programme is going to go on forever. You think you're tired now? Wait until you see one o'clock roll (laughs) round. Now, Steve Allen really is one of the most important people in the development of TV light entertainment and his influence is felt on both sides of the Atlantic even if virtually no one in the UK has heard of him.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be able to pick him out of a lineup. He was a very well-read
0: person, a writer, a musician, and as a comedian, he wasn't afraid to send himself up at all, for example, jumping into a giant vat of jello. Right. The basic elements of what you would still recognise as The Tonight Show today were there. A monologue, banter with the band leader, sketches, and of course, chat with guests. Right, okay. Now, the BBC's first attempt at a TV talk show was In Town Tonight, and the show actually started in 1933 on the wireless, running until 1960.
1: Well, that's a really long time.
0: Yeah, and between 1954 and 1956, the show was simultaneously broadcast on BBC television. Right. And not that the BBC is in any way London-centric. Oh, no. No, no, of course not. The opening announcement of the show was, Once again, we stop the mighty roar of London's traffic. (laughs) And from the great crowds, we bring you some of the interesting people who have come by land, sea and air to be in town tonight.
1: I don't reckon the roar of London's traffic was very mighty at all in those years and at that time of night, but yep. The show would look at what was going on in London that week, typically including
0: interviews with stars appearing in the West End or whose films were premiering. Right. And then in 1959, the BBC launched Face to Face, a one on one serious interview show hosted by John Freeman. Mm. Notably, Freeman's face was almost never shown. The camera concentrated on the subject.
1: That's an unusual setup.
0: Yeah, and part of the reason for that setup is that the interview was almost like an interrogation. You really probed the show's victim, I mean, guest. <laughs>
1: That's a bit sort of scarily intense, isn't it, as a viewing experience? Yeah, it was all about the guests,
0: and Freeman didn't want to impose his personality on the show at all, which of course is very different to where The Tonight Show had gone. Yeah. A notable guest was Tony Hancock, who seemed almost disturbed by the questions, and the interview really encouraged him to be self-critical throughout. But, to be fair to Freeman, Hancock did say how much he liked the interview style.
1: Yeah, he was a very intense man anyway, wasn't he, Tony Hancock?
0: Yeah, exactly. The series was revived in 1989 with Jeremy Isaacs as its host. Back in the US, after Steve Allen left The Tonight Show, he was replaced by Jack Parr. And Parr took it in a slightly different direction and is credited with introducing the host's desk. Mm. And if anything, the show featured more chat. Right. In 1960, he told a joke about a water closet. An NBC thought this was quite an offensive term and cut the joke from broadcast. (laughs) Parr could be a bit temperamental. And the next night, he walked out in the middle of the taping saying there must be a better way to make a living. Wow. And he returned three weeks later saying, turns out there isn't a better way of making a living and (laughs) got back on with his show. Very good. Then in 1962, a certain Johnny Carson took over The Tonight Show.
1: Oh yeah, how did that work out?
0: Well, he hosted it for 30 years. Oh, fair play then. His monologue was basically seen as a summary of everything that had happened in America that day. Mm -hmm. He really was the barometer of what was going on. And he had regular comedy sketches, he had characters such as Karnak the Magnificent, actually based on a Steve Allen routine. But the chat element was core to the show. He interviewed basically everyone
1: all the big stars
0: the show was filmed well initially in new york then in la specifically burbank and so he had access to all those stars anyone who was anyone appeared on that show the Tonight Show and Carson in particular ultimately had a huge influence on UK TV, even though The Tonight Show itself has never done anything in the UK.
1: Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? We've all heard of The Tonight Show. We've all heard of Johnny Carson, but most of us have never seen more than a couple of minutes of it.
0: No, it's bizarre, isn't it? It's through reputation, not because we watch them. Yeah. And every time someone has tried to put a US talk show on in the UK, it has never worked. No, The first attempt at producing an American-style talk show in the UK was in 1964 when ABC made the Eamon Andrews show for ITV. Right. Andrews was the consummate host of This Is Your Life, a show he had presented since 1955 and would keep presenting until 1987. Yeah. But he wasn't quite right for the talk show role. It put him on edge, and you could see him sweat on air.
1: (laughs) Right, that's not what you want, is it?
0: No, and unfortunately, it all seemed a bit unprofessional, and the show didn't last. Right. The next person to talk about is David Frost. Right, yeah. And he'd had big success hosting BBC satire shows, that was the week that was, not so much a programme, more a way of life, and the Frost Report. Yeah. David Frost then joined Rediffusion to host a talk show called The Frost Programme in 1966. Right. This was the first show that involved the audience, and it's hugely influential for all those sort of audience shows that followed.
1: To some degree. I mean, it's not like he was an early Jerry Springer or Jeremy Kyle, is it?
0: Frosty, Frosty, Frosty. (laughs) Frost could do serious and the light-hearted. He was equally adept at confronting fraudsters on behalf of defrauded audience members, but also totally comfortable with big-name celebrity interviews. Yeah. And soon, Frost would find himself hosting shows in America and in the UK for LWT. At one point, he was on eight nights a week, five in America, three in the UK, and he commuted back and forth between London and New York.
1: Right, frequent flyer miles on Concorde. Absolutely. I think he really liked
0: it when Concorde was introduced, because he arrived in New York before he left London. (laughs) He'd, of course, go on to produce the Nixon interviews. Yeah. And then he would become the UK's top political interviewer, first on TVAM and then at the BBC.
1: So, obviously, a very legendary figure in UK television, but for me, I would think about him either in his early career doing satire or in his late career doing political interviews. I never really think of that chat show part of his career.
0: Yeah, I don't either. Now, the next show I want to talk about is D Time. Oh, yeah. In 1967, former Radio Caroline DJ Simon D launched D-Time on BBC One. Mm. It was the first UK live early evening entertainment and chat show. Yeah. Hugely successful. It attracted up to 18 million viewers. Oh, wow. I mean, he tapped into the 1960s zeitgeist. The show
1: was huge. Yeah, this is a bit like we were talking about with Ready, Steady, Go, isn't it? The, these cultural moments that brought the 60s, as we think of them, to the TV audience. Simon D was what we would think of as like a 1960s playboy type character, wasn't he? Exactly. I mean,
0: the closing titles was him picking up a young lady in his jag and driving around as the credits play. I mean, that's exactly the image that he had, yes.
1: And it's mad how big he was and then how he completely disappeared.
0: Yeah, the adulation went to his head. Yeah. And after two years of doing his show on the BBC, he demanded more money and more control. The BBC's head of light entertainment, Bill Cotton, said no. And so D left for LWT.
1: Right. He's sort of the Chris Evans of his day, wasn't he? If we think about Chris Evans being the radio DJ, big TV star of the 90s, huge ego falling out with the broadcasters and being sacked.
0: Yeah, I think it's a very apt comparison. Of course, Chris Evans would go on to realise that he'd been a bit of a dick. Yeah. And apologised and then came back as a massive broadcaster again. Yeah. The same's not true for D. Right. He spent a year at LWT before his ego again got the better of him. Right. His show was on after frost and there was a frostiness between them. For example, who would get the best guest? Right. Unfortunately for Dee, Frost part-owned LWT. (laughs) Frost's show wasn't actually going to change. No, no. Dee's show ended, he had nowhere to go, the BBC weren't going to re-employ him after what had happened. Basically, he threw it all away.
1: Still a relatively young man, his career was over.
0: His broadcasting career was over, he became a bus driver. Oh, right. At one point, he couldn't pay his rates and got sent to prison. Oh, wow. There was another incident where he was jailed for vandalising a toilet seat with Petula Clark's <laughs> face painted on it. He thought it was disrespectful.
1: I mean, it was. Where, where, where was this toilet seat? Somewhere downtown. <laughs> yes, but get this, the magistrate who sent him down was Bill Cotton. No way, the
0: TV executive Bill Cotton. The man who wouldn't renew his contract. You think it would be a slight
1: conflict of interest? Yes, that's incredible.
0: Yeah. So all of that history brings me on to my first pitch.
1: Yes, what have you got for me?
0: So the aforementioned Bill Cotton had a gap in the BBC One schedule and he commissioned Michael Parkinson to host a weekly chat show so parkinson began on the 19th of june 1971 and originally ran until 1982 then again from 1998
1: to 2007 yeah so it was on air for these two really lengthy spells but it also had this really lengthy break in between
0: yeah it's crazy isn't it career defining presenting a show for that long but then taking such a big gap doing other things yeah Parkinson was inspired by Carson, Mm. but unlike the US shows, Parkinson focused on the interviews. There was no comedy.
1: No, and no desk.
0: No desk, no. Bill Cotton wanted a desk, but Parkinson insisted, no desk. Right. Parkinson was not a comedian. He'd been a journalist on newspapers initially in his hometown of Barnsley, though he quit after a row with the editor about an article promoting the editor's belief that hanging criminals was a good idea. Right. Uh, He then moved to the Yorkshire Evening Post, where he met his wife, Mary. Then he worked at The Guardian and The Daily Express, before joining the fledgling Granada to make current affairs programmes. Right. He hosted the local news programme, Seen at 6.30, and that featured regular appearances from a small local band called The Beatles.
1: Oh, interesting. And Parkinson, of course, then appears on the cover of Paul McCartney and Wings' album, Band on the Run. Presumably that's when they knew each other from. Absolutely. By the way, what's your favourite Wings album? I'd have to say the best of Wings. Good choice.
0: Parkinson prepared every interview like a journalist with hugely detailed research. Yeah. An early interview was with Orson Welles, and this sort of gave the show a sense of gravitas. You know, if Orson Welles is prepared to do it, yeah. I'll do it. Yeah. Prior to the interview, Welles threw away Parkinson's pre-prepared question list, saying to the host, <laughs> we'll talk.
1: Oh, interesting. Interesting.
0: And they did talk, and Parkinson was, you know, obviously he'd remembered an awful lot of the research, so he had the yeah. knowledge in his head, and it yeah. was a free-flowing conversation. Nice. One of the most infamous moments was when Rod Hull and Emu appeared.
1: Yeah, of course.
0: The bird pecks Parky a bit, rips up his notes, but it's after Parky inquires if the bird is male or female that things go really wrong. <laughs> Emu grabs Parky's chair, spins him round, then pecks Parky so hard that he's toppled off his chair, and he's wrestled on the ground. It was all a bit much, wasn't it? Yes, I, I think it was probably a bit over the top. Parkinson would later talk about that bloody bird, lamenting that it's what he'd be most famous for. Yeah. Another guest that night was Billy Connolly, and he told the bird, if you touch me, I'll break your arm.
1: <laughs> Funnily enough,
0: the bird stayed well
1: away. Billy Connolly, of course, was uh, one of the people that Parkinson interviewed the most, right?
0: He was Parkinson's signature guest, appearing 14 times.
1: Wow. The chemistry between the two of them was famous, wasn't it? I, I guess it was appearing on Parkinson that made Billy Connolly a star in the first place, right?
0: Yeah, on his first appearance, Connolly was basically an unknown comic. He told a rather risque joke about a Glaswegian man who had murdered his wife.
3: You see, this guy was going out to meet his friend in the pub... He said, oh, hello, how's it going? He said, fine, fine. He said, how's the wife? He said, oh, she's dead. No, said, what? He says, dead. Out the game. Dead. I murdered her. Forget it. He said, kidding me on. He said, no, no, it's morning. Dead. He said, look, oh, I'm not talking to you if you keep on talking like that. He said, well, please yourself. I'll show you if you want. He said, Oh, show me. Said, oh, show me. So are we up to his tenement building through the close? That's the entrance to the tenement. <laughs> Into the back green, into the wash house, and sure enough, there's a big mound of earth. but There's a bum sticking out of it. He
2: says, is that her?
3: He says, aye. He says, where'd you leave a bum sticking out for? He says, I need somewhere to park my bike.
0: That one joke endeared Connolly to millions and turned him into a star. Parkey described Connolly as the funniest man he'd ever met. Right. Now, Parkey's style was relaxed. You know, he let his guests talk. He listened yeah. intently to what they had to say and gave them space. Yeah. This led to guests sometimes revealing more than perhaps they intended.
2: Do you feel that David is perhaps better, has a better public persona, image than you have? I think he does have now. I don't think that he did a few years ago. And I think that sometimes when you can get down and think, "Oh God, why? why don't people understand me? Why are they saying this? Why are they saying that? What better person to look at than my own husband to see how somebody can turn all that around? I mean, David is... uh, I call him golden balls.
1: (laughs) That became his nickname ever after. You're not going to live that one down, are you? Parkinson
0: was known to flirt with his guests. Yeah. But for all the flirting, he could sometimes be a bit misogynistic. Mm. In 1975, he described Helen Mirren as a sex queen and asked if her physical attributes or equipment Hindered her desire to be a serious actress.
1: Oh, that's unpleasant, isn't it?
0: Mirren was understandably offended.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: And replied, You mean my fingers? Come on, spit it out. Serious actresses can't have big bosoms, is that what you mean? Parkinson replied, Well, they might detract from the performance. Oh, what an idiotic thing to say. Mirren later dubbed Parkinson a sexist old fart. <laughs>
1: Well, quite right.
0: Parkinson later said he didn't enjoy watching the interview as he realised he was pompous and sexist.
1: Yeah, well, I think he's right.
0: (laughs) One of the more infamous appearances on the show was Meg Ryan in 2003.
1: Yeah, this is sort of famously one of the most um, embarrassing moments in TV, supposedly, isn't it? He's getting nothing from her, she just doesn't want to be there.
0: Yeah, she was on to promote her film The Cut. Right. I think a film that nobody remembers. No. And she gave one-word answers. She appeared angry after Parkinson asked her questions about the nude scene in the film. Right. And then they talk about how she trained to be a journalist. And so surely as a journalist, she would understand you need to give more than one syllable answers to every question. It was just <laughs> cringy. Ouch. When Parkinson asked if she was comfortable with the interview and she said no, Parky asked her what would she do if she were in his position? And she replied, just wrap it up.
1: <laughs>
0: Later, she sort of described him as a disapproving father.
1: It is a bit awkward. It's atypical of what we're used to from Parkinson, where, as you say, he can usually get the guests to relax and give him something. Yes. Parky's favourite guest was Muhammad Ali. Right, yeah. I mean, after Billy Connolly, that is the person you would most associate with Parkinson, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and Parky described him as the most extraordinary man he'd ever met.
1: If you're looking for the perfect guest for a TV chat show, then Muhammad Ali, possibly the greatest sports person of all time, incredibly intelligent and articulate man, lots of opinions, not afraid to say exactly what he means, and he's funny as well. What more could you ask for? Absolutely. And they verbally
0: spar together in the studio. Yeah. Parkinson interviewed him four times, and there was a lot of great banter between them, as this short clip demonstrates.
2: I'm not going to argue with you.
3: <laughs> You're not as dumb as you look.
0: <laughs> but As you say, the interview showcased how thoughtful Arlie was.
3: Yeah. But would you like to, to be president? No. No? No, sir. Too dangerous. <laughs> Number one comes freedom first, and my people equality. And this is uh, what I plan to do after I'm through fighting, working with nothing but the people, the little people in the alleys, the wine heads, the downtrodden people, going out among them and helping them with, with my image.
1: I just always loved watching Muhammad Ali being interviewed.
0: Yeah. On their third meet, though, in 1974, Ali genuinely lost his temper with Parkinson.
3: I'm not just starting to fighter. I can talk all week on millions of subjects, and you do not have enough wisdom to corner me on television. You do not have enough. You are too small mentally to tackle me on nothing that I represent. <laughs> I'm serious. You and this little TV show is nothing to Muhammad Ali. if you got some more questions, I'll ask them. And I bet you I'll eat you up right here on there. It ain't no way you can tackle me.
0: Incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Parky later said that at first he didn't actually like Ali. He described him as impossible to like, confrontational and dictatorial. But later on, as Ali mellowed, Parky really liked him and they became friends.
1: Yeah, there was an interview, wasn't there, ten years later, and you could see that that mutual respect and friendship had developed between them.
0: Yeah, you just saw the absolute respect between the pair of them. Parkinson left the show and the BBC in 1982. He wanted a five nights a week show and the BBC wouldn't give it to him. Oh, right. Terry Wogan took over the Saturday night slot. Yes. Now, in 1995, Parkinson hosted some reminisce shows looking back at the original series. It was filmed in his garden shed, thanks to BBC budget <laughs> restrictions. And these shows were so popular that the talk show proper came back in 1998.
1: I think that might have all been part of the the wave of 70s nostalgia that came around in the 90s, right? People suddenly started looking back at things that maybe in the 80s had felt a bit outdated and then by the 90s enough time had passed that you could look back on them fondly.
0: I think that's right. And yes, people looked back at those interviews and saw how good he was and, and the quality of the guests that he got. And I think probably in the 90s there wasn't really anyone doing that sort of interview show.
1: Yes, and then had an incredibly long run again.
0: Yes. He left the BBC again in 2004, this time because they put Match of the Day in his time slot. Right. So he went over to ITV. He did three years at ITV before he decided he had enough, partly because he didn't like the new director of television who'd just come in at ITV. Right. And so, yes, in 2007, he retired.
1: So, absolutely legendary television show. If you asked anybody in the street to name a British chat show host, nine out of ten would say Parkinson is the first name that came out of the mouth, probably. Hugely influential and some fantastic interviews with fantastic guests and some really, really important television moments, I guess.
0: Well, I, I think probably the greatest chat show host we've had in UK television. So that's my pitch for Parkinson.
1: Well, it's a strong pitch. Let's see what else you've got.
0: Well, I just want to talk about another show that I'm not actually going to pitch. Right. ITV put Russell Harty on in 1972 against Parkinson.
1: Right, yeah.
0: Prior to working in broadcasting, he'd been a school teacher. He taught Richard Whiteley English.
1: That's interesting. I I sort of feel like you can see a line in the TV presentation, style that runs between Russell Harty and Richard Whiteley. So that is interesting. Yeah.
0: Now, Harty's show wasn't as big as Parkinson, but he did attract some big stars. Yeah. For example, in 1973, The Who appeared. Pete Townsend and Keith Moon ripped off each other's shirts.
1: Yeah, I've seen that interview.
0: Hearty won the 1973 Pi Television Award for Most Outstanding New Personality of the Year. (laughs) Isn't that a great award?
1: It's a lengthy title.
0: Yeah. He moved his show to the BBC in 1980 and it ran until 1984. Yeah. And one of his most infamous moments was during the BBC run when he interviewed Grace Jones.
1: Oh, she was fantastic. What an amazing person she is.
0: Yeah. So on this show, she was actually quite nervous throughout the interview. But worse was to come when the other guests were introduced. Yeah. The seating arrangement of the show was a bit unusual. And it turns out there's a reason why it was unique. Harty was in the middle with jones on the right and the other guests on his left yes and that meant when he was interviewing the other guests he had to turn his back on jones yeah and she was not happy fair to say she
1: was not impressed
3: if you turn your back no, to me well, one I've more minute. I, have, I, have I got mean to, really I have got this this to talk to this. It's been going ju- on too long already. Well it's not
1: it's only gonna go on in about another six minutes, and you're going to have another little part
0: of it soon. But let, well, let, maybe I should go let right ex- now. No, then. Don't, don't go right now unless you really want to. Well don't turn no, your no, back. I can't on me anymore. Um, I can't look at you. Ah Now hold hold The sound of Grace Jones slapping a talk show host there. <laughs> yeah. I liked it when he said it's only going on for another six minutes. Yeah,
1: I mean, that's ages, isn't it? That's an age
0: in television. Yeah. So look, I'm going to come on to my next pitch. It's actually someone who went the opposite way to Harty. They started their talk show on the BBC and they moved to ITV. It's Des O'Connor. Okay. And his show, Des O'Connor Tonight. Yeah. It was during national service that he first performed his commanding officer insisted that he take part in a talent show. Right. And after he was demobbed, he became a butlin's redcoat. Yeah. His early success was gained by being able to generate an instant rapport with his audiences.
1: He was an amiable chap, wasn't he, Des O'Connor, whatever else you might think about him. Yeah. He was a sort of likeable personality. As soon as you looked at him, he, he looked like a nice fella.
0: I think that's absolutely key to his act. He worked the variety theatres. And in 1958 was Compare when Buddy Holly toured the UK. Right. And then he got a variety show on ITV in 1963 called The Des O'Connor Show. And that ran until 1971. And on this show, Des would sing a lot.
1: The ongoing national joke was that Des O'Connor was a bad singer, right? Yeah. Which is weird because he's not a bad singer at all. No, I mean, he had four top 10 singles, including a
0: number one in 1968 with I Pretend. Right, yeah. And of course, the people who took the piss out of O'Connor in particular were Morecambe and Wise. Yes. Des would often appear as they were taking the piss. Yeah. And it was relentless. But what a lot of people don't know is that Des actually wrote a lot of the jokes himself.
1: So he was making himself the butt of Morecambe and Wise's jokes. Yeah. Fair play to him.
0: Now, his talk show proper, Des O'Connor Tonight, started in 1977 on BBC Two. Mm. As I said, he'd later moved to ITV, Thames specifically, in 1983. But the BBC run in particular made a thing of bringing on up-and-coming US comedians. For example, Jay Leno and David Letterman.
1: Oh, a couple of chat show hosts in their own right. Yes,
0: exactly. And talking of Des singing, in those early years, Des would open each show with a song Letterman picked up on the quality of Dez's singing.
3: Will you sing Pennies from Heaven just one more time? (laughs) About eight times, wouldn't you like to hear it, folks? I did do two takes of Pennies from Heaven, each one better than the last.
0: (laughs) Dez had a relaxed style, he acted as a straight man to his guests and he'd set them up for the anecdotes they were going to tell.
1: Yeah, I mean, I always found that very cheesy and insincere. You could see it coming a mile off. Like, he's innocently asking a question of, oh, have you ever owned a Labrador? And then <laughs> the, the comedian just happens to have an anecdote or a joke on that subject. It, it used to grind my gears, how clunkingly obvious all that was.
0: It's obvious the guests were pre-interviewed.
1: Yes, and also the obsequiousness of his laughter. Like, <laughs> I, I get that he was encouraging comedians and the polite thing to do is to laugh at a comedian's joke but it was such fake laughter i always thought
0: yeah in the mid-1980s des's show went out live in an 8 p.m slot on itv yes one of the most infamous uk chat show moments happened live on itv in november 1986 is this stan boardman it is He told a supposed story of Polish fighter pilot Charlie Polanski's appearance on This Is Your Life with the aforementioned Eamon Andrews. Yeah. During the Second World War, Polanski had shot down many German planes, including the Fokker Wharf.
3: I am in the Spitfire, and all of a sudden I see in front of me, two fuckers. (laughs) I think to to myself, I must shoot one of the fuckers down. (laughs) So I... I sit... I just followed the fucker down, and the other fucker... <laughs> went into the clouds, so I followed him. And I lose the fucker. And <laughs> well, then, I come out of the clouds, I look behind me, the fucker is behind me. Eamon <laughs> Andrews said, hang on, Charlie Polanski, you've got to explain to the viewers that uh, the German uh, fighter plane was a, was a German fucker wolf. <laughs> He said, that is correct, Damon, but these fuckers were Messerschmitts.
1: That was a huge scandal, wasn't it? Like a huge, huge scandal at the time. It got to the point where Boardman was banned
0: from ITV and never appeared on the channel again. That's amazing. I think it's actually a very good joke.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't particularly like uh, Stan Boardman's Germans routine at all, generally, but I think that's a funny joke and well delivered. Yeah. Now, as if it
0: couldn't get any worse, later in the same show, oliver reed appeared he had a bit of a reputation for being a drinker yes yeah and he had indeed been drinking prior to this live appearance and he provided an interesting answer to one of Dez's questions
3: i'm here to find out little things about you that we do not know and there's one thing that i was told i can't believe you have a tattoo in a very unusual place yes on my cock
1: Crikey, this is in the same episode as the Focker's joke. It's in the same
0: episode as the Focus joke. Wow. And you can imagine the Thames management is in absolute meltdown at this Absolutely. point. Absolutely, They're probably starting to think, oh, are we still going to have a franchise once the IBA has yeah, looked at this? Yeah, yeah. But that's not all. No way. If you had to guess who was the unpredictable guest on a chat show in the 1980s, who would you say?
1: Well, I'm worried this is too on the nose, I guess, but Freddie Starr. Bingo. Freddie Starr, (laughs) he was the night's final guest. My God. And he was dressed up
0: as if he were a contestant from a beauty pageant. And when he was asked, as part of the act, what do you say to feminists who say all beauty contestants are just dumb blondes? He
1: gave V-signs to the cameras. Oh, wow. Wow. So fuckers, cock and V-signs in the same live TV episode. I mean, that's an evening in, isn't it? By 1980s television standards, that's absolutely scandalous. I do remember there being a huge deal about the Stan Boardman thing, but I hadn't realised it was in the context of all this or the rudeness in the same episode.
0: No, I mean, obviously the Stan Boardman bit is what we all remember. And the fact that Boardman was banned from ITV got the headline. But the other thing that happened is that Des O'Connor's show was never broadcast live again. Right. Right. The show kept going, though. In fact, it ran for 22 years, only finishing in 1999 as a series. And indeed, there were six further specials between 2000 and 2002. So a very long running show.
1: Fair enough. Well, I'm going to put my cards on the table nice and early. I hated it. I hated everything about it. I hated the theme tune. I hated Des O'Connor's presentation style. I hated how forced and phony all the interviews were. I thought it was garbage. But I'm in with a chance.
0: (laughs) Well, okay, fair enough. But I should talk about the other big show on ITV in the 80s and 90s. It's another show I'm not pitching. Aspel and Company.
1: Oh yeah, the poor man's parky.
0: Yes. <laughs> and it was during the 80s that the idea of going on a talk show because you were an interesting guest was replaced with going on a talk show because you had something to plug.
1: Right, yes.
0: And the nadir of this was in 1993, when Arnold Schwarzenegger, Bruce Willis and Sylvester Stallone appeared to promote Planet Hollywood. Right. At one point, Asphil just read out the menu... <laughs> It was awful. It was pure product placement, years before product placement was allowed. Yeah. And the regulator was not happy. I can imagine. On another occasion, Oliver Reed appeared drunk. Yes. He sang an impromptu rendition of Wild One. (laughs) Yeah. Reed's antics were pre-recorded this time, although Greg Dyke said later, I think the regulator thought it was live, which is why we got away with it. If they'd known it had been recorded and we chose to broadcast it, we'd have been in serious trouble.
1: I don't think it's going to be the last time on Cracking TV we talk about Oliver Reed appearing drunk, is it?
0: Probably not. I think he might feature in subsequent episodes. Yeah. Aspel was a big presenter in the 80s, but probably the biggest chat show host of the 80s was a certain Terry Wogan.
1: Yes, and I'll tell you what, that is the show that I've brought with me. Oh, okay. Yeah, my commission that I've got in my back pocket and that you will have to beat is the BBC's thrice-weekly chat show, Wogan. Right. Terry Wogan began his career in banking. Oh, really? Which you could probably tell from his suits and his haircut. <laughs> he became a newsreader and announcer with the Irish broadcaster RTE. Oh, right, yeah. When he was 29 years old in 1967, he moved to the UK to become one of the presenters in the original lineup of BBC Radio 1 with a show that was simulcast on Radio 2. Okay. And then in 1972, he became the presenter of the Radio 2 Breakfast Show, which, of course, he went on to be associated with for a very, very long time. Yeah. He covered the Eurovision Song Contest for BBC Radio for the first time in 1971, and then in 1973 started doing TV coverage. And, of course, he would also be associated with that for more than three decades.
0: Yes, and he is, of course, the cracking TV commentator.
1: That's right. And he had a top 30 hit in the charts in 1978. Do you know what the song was?
0: The Floral Dance.
1: That is correct. He then presented Blankety Blank from 1979 until 1983.
0: Absolute classic.
1: He presented the very first Children in Need Appeal in 1978, when it was a five-minute broadcast on Christmas Day. Oh, wow. And it later became a live evening of programmes in 1980, and Wogan hosted it until 2014. Yeah. So even by the time he started doing his chat show on BBC One, simply called Wogan, he was already a very established and huge part of the BBC firmament. Absolutely. So his show, Wogan, was broadcast on BBC One from 1982 to 1992. Yeah. For the vast majority of that time, it was broadcast live from BBC Television Theatre in Shepherds Bush. Yes. But for the final year of broadcast, it had moved to BBC Television Centre. For its first year, it was broadcast on a Tuesday evening, but from 1983 to 1985, as you mentioned earlier, it moved to Saturday nights to replace Parkinson. Yeah. From 1985, though, it settled into what we think of as its established place which was three nights a week at 7pm, usually Monday, Wednesday and Friday. Yes. So Terry, how could we describe him? Very affable person. He's always described as a great broadcaster, right? If you, if you mention Terry Wogan, the first things out of anyone's mouth will be he's a great broadcaster. Yeah. But people rarely examine what they mean by that. And I thought it might be useful just to have a think about what it is we mean when we say that. He's definitely very warm and intimate, you know, and particularly on his Radio 2 show, but more generally in everything that he did, he gave a sense of connection with the audience. Yes. He had a good sense of humour, very self-deprecating, but would also gently mock his guests. But this was what he was good at, I think, was sort of taking the piss, but without being insulting.
0: It was just very gentle banter, and he was very affable, and he got the best out of his guests.
1: There were one or two examples in his chat show which we'll talk about where it felt like it had a bit of a nasty edge, but for the most part, I think you're absolutely right. And this is what's interesting about all his shows, I think. They were largely gentle, but they weren't bland. Mm. But I think it would be somewhat ahistorical to think people have always said, he's a great broadcaster. Yeah, he was on TV and radio all the time. In fact, that was a sort of national joke that any time you switched on the TV or radio, Wogan was on. Yes. People didn't always welcome that. Like, I think people were a bit sick of him and his shtick. Like, there was a lot of people finding his stuff a bit boring at the time. And we look back on it now and say, oh, he was a great. But I don't think that was always everybody's opinion at the time.
0: Growing up as a kid in the 80s, you heard that wogan theme tune and you just thought god this is going to be so dull why is my mum watching this
1: we were children and it did seem to be a show for old people yes he would have been in his fifties then. He seemed Ancient. Absolutely ancient. He seemed to come from a completely different era. Yeah. If what you were interested in then was the tube or the young ones, then you didn't want to watch Wogan, did you? Definitely not. And it surprises me that you're pitching him. He did do some very memorable and notable interviews. One of the classics was when he interviewed George Best. Yes. And George Best was clearly a little, bit a little drunk. worse for wear. Yes. Terry, I like screen, alright? <laughs>
0: All right. So, what do you do with your time these days? Screw it. Nice. I mean, screwing at seven o'clock on a Monday evening, that's quite <laughs> shocking by 80 standards. It is a bit much.
1: Clearly, George Best had a very serious issue with alcohol here, yet it was treated as a lighthearted subject. If that interview had been 10 years later, it would have been taken a lot more seriously. Yes. Cilla Black appeared on Wogan. Her days of being a chart star were over and her TV presenting gigs had dried up at the time. Yeah, But she hadn't yet had her big comeback with Surprise Surprise and Blind Date. And this interview with Wogan is seen as the moment where she reappeared in the public consciousness and TV commissioners thought, oh, there is something about her. We need to find the right vehicle for her.
0: Although, of course, later on, when she stopped doing Blind Date, apparently the reason why she didn't get any work after that is because the runners on Blind Date were now TV executives and they knew how difficult she was to work with.
1: So I think Scylla's, oh, I'm just a simple girl from Liverpool, Sherard, was exactly that. I Mm. think the face that she presented on her shows was not exactly who she was. Yeah. Nicholas Cage memorably appeared on Wogan. Do you remember this? Bizarre yes. performance. He sort of came on doing forward roles and behaved in the most bizarre and over-the-top fashion you can really imagine.
0: Mm, very odd. And that's become his talk show shtick. He never does a normal interview.
1: Yeah, and it feels so incongruous in the Wogan studio in that sort of genteel environment.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: David Bowie appeared with Tin Machine and clearly did not want to be interviewed as David Bowie. He was there going, this is my new band, I'm just one member of the band. Mm. Wogan, understandably, wants to talk to David Bowie as the huge star. Yeah. And Bowie and the band clearly feel a bit insulted by this and they're refusing to play ball, which led to a slightly cringy moment along the lines of what we heard with Meg Ryan. Was
3: it a deliberate attempt for you to do, go in another direction?
2: Hello, Ron. <laughs> It's just a mate
3: of ours in Dublin. Yeah. Yes, I have a few mates in Dublin as well.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: Left a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. But was it, I mean, from your point of view, you wanted to go in a musical direction? We, what we just, just happened? Uh, we just uh, got around to jamming, really, and uh, it just uh, felt like a good thing to do. So we're just doing it to death.
0: Yeah. What are you trying to do? Oh, that's awkward. <laughs>
1: yes. And perhaps most famously of all, David Icke.
0: Yes.
1: David Icke had been a professional goalkeeper, had been a sports broadcaster for the BBC and a sports journalist. Yeah. He appeared on Wogan wearing a turquoise tracksuit talking about slightly unusual and esoteric spiritual matters surely this was the era where you wore turquoise (laughs) tracksuits. well shell suits were fashionable at the time to be fair to David, like and they've made a comeback now if you walk around east london people are wearing the sorts of things that i wore as a 12 year old yeah i won't be getting one again myself shame One of two things was going on with Ike. Either he was, as he declared, the son of God. It's not impossible, but unlikely. He has retrofitted that, I think, now to claim that he wasn't saying he was the son of God, but he did. Mm. So, look, either that was true, in which case he was probably owed a bit of respect. Yes. Or something was happening with his mental health. Mm. And I think either way, Wogan's interviewing technique verged on bullying, I thought. Yes. You know the best way of
0: removing negativity is to laugh and be joyous. So I'm delighted that there's
3: so much laughter in the audience tonight. But no, um, it's. A... But just let just let me just let me they're, say this: they're laughing at you; they're not laughing with you. Fine.
1: <laughs> Wogan has expressed regret for that in subsequent years. Yeah. He re-interviewed David Icke a couple of decades later. David Icke had moved his perspective on from the Son of God stuff to the conspiracy theory stuff that he is now a major proponent of. Mm. You know, looking back at it, there was an encouragement there for Ike to be ridiculed. And regardless of what you think of the man and what he stands for, he's a human being. Got to walk down the street the next day. He's a person who had a family. Sure, somebody says something a bit bizarre, like, I think I'm the Son of God. You know, I'm not sure the appropriate other response to that is to ridicule and bully them i mean i'm sure wogan didn't intend to bully him i think we have to ask why ike was invited onto the show it wasn't because everybody was taking his claim seriously at that point so they had to be debunked it was just sort of let's have a look at this faintly absurd alan partridge style figure who we can take the piss out of
0: well that is true they didn't need to book him in the first place
1: exactly Wogan's chat show ran for just about 10 years until 1992, when it was replaced in the schedule by the garbage soap opera El Dorado, which you once tried to get onto cracking TV.
0: Cheeky. (laughs) Talking of soaps, I'll always associate Wogan with Dallas. Oh, yes. He was obsessed with that show, and in 1985 he was given the job of introducing the final episode. And here at
3: last it is, friends. You got the old hankies? Ready to have your, your emotions thrashed. Your finer feelings, pommeled. <laughs> Your fondest preconceptions, Dashed. <laughs> You'll never be ready at the same time for the final episode of the present series of You Know What. Nobody says last of
1: the present series anymore, do they? No,
0: it's a nice turn of phrase. It's a shame. It is a shame. But one thing I like about that clip, it is actually messing with television in a low-key way. It's not very often you will see one show segueing into the other. This is still BBC1, but Wogan is playing with the serious business of presentation.
1: Yeah, you big dog. So that was <laughs> that was Wogan's chat show and then he returned to Radio 2 for a second stint on the breakfast show in 1993 and he stayed there for another 16 years. Yeah. The reason I brought this chat show along is largely, I think, because it was such primetime fair. It was so widely watched. It was such a part of the day-to-day conversation. It's one of those shows for me that even if you didn't particularly like it, you always watched it. Like Tomorrow's World or Question of Sport or even Top of the Pops. They were just there for everybody all the time.
0: John, it was boring.
1: It was primetime family viewing, sure, but they were always trying to do something a little bit unexpected. It wasn't just uncontroversial, straightforward, genteel chat.
0: I mean, look, you're the commissioner, but I think you'd be mad if you commissioned Wogan.
1: I think it's a safe choice, and that's why I've brought it along. You're not going to lose your job as a commissioner, commissioning Wogan. Could I do something a little bit riskier? Yes. But this is my fallback option. If all else fails, put Wogan on, which I think was pretty much the defining <laughs> slogan of TV commissioners for about 30 years. Yeah.
0: So what's your next pitch? So in order to get to my next pitch, I just need to talk about a person who I think is the greatest broadcaster to have ever appeared on television. Wow. Someone whose influence is felt all over television.
1: That's a huge claim.
0: I'm talking about David Letterman. Right. Now, he hosted Late Night with David Letterman on NBC from 1982 until 1993. Yeah. And after NBC gave Jay Leno The Tonight Show, he moved to CBS where he hosted The Late Show until 2015.
1: So he'd been doing Late Night, which was the show after The Tonight Show? Yes. He, I guess, was always seen as the natural heir uh, to Johnny Carson exactly. and everybody assumed that when Carson retired, Letterman would take over The Tonight Show.
0: Exactly. Tonight Show going out at 11.30, late night at 12.30. Yes. And I can honestly say that one of the greatest moments in my life was sitting in David Letterman's audience.
1: One of the greatest moments in your life. Yes. <laughs> that is a big claim.
0: He's the legend, isn't he? Uh, I've also sat in Jay Leno's audience, which was okay, but it's not quite the same. Right. Right. Late Night, in particular, is one of the most innovative shows in
1: television ever. It was kind of an anti-talk show, and it sent up the conventions of the genre. Right, and did that mean that the guests had to behave differently than they would on a normal chat show? Yes and no. I mean, most guests came out and did their normal thing, but you could see Letterman's
0: disdain if they didn't play along. Right. He did stunts in the Steve Allen style, mm-hmm. he sat in a giant bowl wearing a suit covered in Rice Krispies and had gallons of milk poured over him to generate a large snap, crackle and pop. Okay. He'd get members of the public on for stupid human tricks and animals on for stupid pet tricks. Lots of things that many hosts have since picked up on. Dave might not have caught on over here, but there are certainly people who owe their act to him. Right. One person who owes their act to letterman is the person I'm going to talk about next, Jonathan Ross.
1: Right, of course, yes.
0: Ross started his full-time TV career as a researcher, although he'd previously appeared as an extra in a 1981 episode of The Ain't Half Hot
1: Mum. And his mum was a regular extra on EastEnders for decades, wasn't she? So this is
0: part of the the family business. The Ross family is TV, isn't it? All the way through. And it was while working on Channel 4 music show, Solid Soul, he met fellow researcher Alan Mark, and they formed their own production company, Channel X, to make a UK version of Late Night with David Letterman. Yeah. That show was The Last Resort. Yes. And it launched in 1987 with Ross as host.
1: And isn't it the case that it was called The Last Resort because they'd intended to find a different host and couldn't get someone, so Jonathan Ross doing it himself was The Last Resort. Exactly. The show was a bit ramshackle,
0: it was certainly irreverent, it was edgy, it was rebellious, it really tapped into the alternative comedy scene of the 80s. Yeah. Probably it's not quite the show that we're looking to commission today because it's much more in that comedy mould than chat, but it would set him up for his later career. Yeah. They once had Bernard Manning on as a guest. Before Ross introduced him to talk, they did this fake album advert,
1: Bernard Manning Sings the Smiths. (laughs) <laughs> I guess at the time, the idea was Bernard Manning was somehow the opposite to Morrissey, but as time has gone on, that no longer quite seems to be the case. No. Tom Jones performed Prince's Kiss as a sort of a random joke,
0: and of course it actually reinvigorated his career.
1: Yeah, maybe the worst cover version of all time, so
0: thanks for that, Jonathan. Well, yes. At the time, a lot was made of Ross versus Wogan, Yeah, but the shows were completely different. And, you know, we've just talked about Wogan being a bit boring. The Last Resort is the complete opposite of Wogan.
1: Yeah, I found it a bit strange, a bit edgy, even a little bit scary when I was little. It definitely wasn't a conventional talk show, so I get that this is not the one that you're pitching. Yeah. Now, after The
0: Last Resort, he went on to present Tonight with Jonathan Ross on Channel 4. Right. But after that, he became disillusioned with television. Right. And he sold his stake in Channel X for a pound.
1: He did disappear for a while, didn't he? It was quite strange. He, he had yeah. been a big rising star of TV and then he was off for some time.
0: Yeah, he eventually turned up at the BBC. Ross is genuinely a massive film buff. Yes. Knows the history of film inside out. So it wasn't really a surprise he replaced Barry Norman on the film programme.
1: This was one thing that I always quite admired about Jonathan Ross in the 90s and maybe into the early 2000s was that he had a range of different presentational styles. Yes. So if he was doing The Last Resort, then he could be a straight man to alternative comedians. If he was doing his own BBC chat show interviewing Hollywood guests or pop stars or rappers or whoever, then he could be daft and he could be the one providing the humour if they weren't going to do it. Mm. If he was presenting an awards show, then he could do that in that very, very slick style that you need to do to keep an awards show moving along. Yeah. If he was doing his Radio 2 programme, then he could keep it very loose. Yeah. And if he was doing the film programme, then he could be an actual intelligent expert and critic. So he he had a lot of strings to his bow at that stage.
0: You're absolutely right. He's definitely got the range. He became the biggest chat show host with Friday Night with Jonathan Ross on BBC One between 2001 and 2010. Yeah. And he fell in love with TV again. Perhaps the fact the BBC were paying him £6 million
1: a year (laughs) helped. I guess that was for his radio work plus his TV work, but it's still a hefty chunk of change.
0: It's a huge amount of money. I think it damaged the BBC how much they paid Jonathan Ross. Even though he could have got more money elsewhere, it was too much money for the BBC to pay. Yeah. I think it changed people's attitudes towards the BBC. It gave an impression that they spent too much money on talent. And it's an impression that still exists to this day.
1: Yes, it's never been shaken off. It's never
0: right. been shaken off. On the chat show itself, everybody appeared. Yeah. It was the place in the UK where you'd see Hollywood A-listers. Yes, when there was a big movie. Stars would be on Jonathan Ross. And I think this is one of the reasons why US talk shows haven't really worked over here. We don't need to see the US talk show to get the Hollywood A-lister. Because the Hollywood A-listers do still swing by London for the premiere. Yeah. Jonathan Ross had a house band. Do you remember them?
1: Four Puffs and a Piano.
0: Yep. They would latch onto one of the guests who were appearing that week, often the musical artist, although not always, and they would play something about them for all the other guests who were coming out.
1: They'd often wear a t-shirt with one of their faces on, wouldn't they?
0: Yes. Between guests, Ross would talk about stories in the news or incidents involving his family and their pets. Yeah. So you sort of got an insight into his life a bit. And we'd also see the guests in the green room before and after their appearance. Ross would chat to them slightly more loosely than he did when they're on stage. Yeah. It, it was sort of going behind the curtain a bit. I mean, obviously, it's all completely fake still, but it, it sort of added to the, the feeling that you were sort of just in on something. Mm-hmm. Now, his interviews could sometimes be a bit lewd. Yeah. An example is when Gwyneth Paltrow appeared in 2008, and they'd just been discussing her children, aged four and two at the time, and this is
3: where Ross took it. you got plans to uh, maybe... Have sex again soon? With you? Christ, yes. (laughs) I would have if you want to have sex, I'll phone my wife. If she gave me permission, (laughs) I would fuck you, yes. (laughs) Because you know what? You are so nicely and clearly you're gagging
1: for it. I mean, that's a lot worse than what Parkinson was doing way back in the 70s. Absolutely. It comes back to this thing that we've discussed before on Cracking TV, where comedy in the noughties was supposedly post-racist and post-sexist, so you could just do that sort of horrible, misogynistic stuff again.
0: Paltrow did later say that she found it hilarious. Yeah. But even if the person you're speaking to is sort of happy, it's not something you should put on TV.
1: That's just sort of aggressive toxic masculinity, to be honest. And yes, it's being played for laughs, and I'm not saying that he really means it, but it helps to create an environment where that sort of behaviour is normalised. The BBC Trust
0: said that it was gratuitous and unnecessarily offensive. Yeah. What about this one? Ross asked David Cameron if he'd ever had a wank thinking about Margaret Thatcher. (laughs) I mean, I
1: think that one's funny. I mean, look, I, I, I find people saying something shocking funny. I do. That yes. appeals to my sense of humour. I can't stand either David Cameron or Margaret Thatcher. Oh, really?
0: You surprise me.
1: I'm going to be bringing so many of my own biases to this that it's very difficult to uh, <laughs> properly assess. But if I consider different people in those roles, right? If I think about him asking that of a male politician whom I like, talking about an older female politician whom I like, I, I would think it's out of line.
0: Yes, no, that's fair enough. Now, the show was suspended in October 2008 after Ross appeared on the disgraced Russell Brand's Radio 2 show in the infamous Saxgate incident.
1: I mean, Saxgate is the obvious example where this all went too far, right? And look, I'm going to hold my hands up and say I probably defended Jonathan Ross and even Russell Brand at the time. On the grounds that I thought doing edgy stuff was really funny. And if it made me laugh, I thought that was a very strong defense against anything that might be wrong about it. I also thought Saxgate was used by the enemies of the BBC and by the right wing in general as a stick to beat the BBC with. Absolutely true. And to beat free expression of countercultural or liberal ideas with. And I came down on the side of Ross and Brand. Lots of things have made us think differently about all this stuff in subsequent years, which we probably don't and shouldn't go into in too much depth. Except to say, I don't know why I didn't see this clearly enough at the time. You know, there really was a real human being at the end of those antiphone messages. Yes. And he probably did find it quite upsetting. And it just was a sort of gratuitous display of privilege. I'm not trying to ban edgy comedy. I'm not trying to ban dark comedy. I really enjoy it. It really makes me laugh.
0: I completely agree. Edgy comedy as a general principle is a very good thing. But where it's descending into personal attacks, that's not on. And we shouldn't forget that the person who was most hard done by in that whole affair was Georgina Bailey.
1: Exactly, and that's the line right there. If there's an individual being bullied, then it's not okay.
0: Ross returned to the BBC after his suspension, but in 2010 he took his show to ITV as the Saturday night chat show, The Jonathan Ross Show.
1: Yeah, which was a very similar format to what he'd had on the BBC, right?
0: Yeah, and it's still running to this day, although I was surprised because it completely passes me by. And I think that sort of sums up where he is now. He's still getting big guests, but he's not quite reaching the heights of that BBC One Friday night show.
1: I caught a bit of his ITV show the other week and it felt a bit anachronistic. It was the latest episode of the show, and yet it felt a bit like I was watching something from 15 years previously. Yeah, it just shows that tastes and styles change. Yes, and also we talked earlier about how Jonathan Ross used to have this huge range, but I think he's been doing the same style for ages now. Yeah. How he will respond to a particular guest, the sort of jokes he'll do, are now very, very predictable. Like, if he brings on someone from the world of hip-hop, he'll do his, oh, I'm an old man, and I'm trying to rap, and I'm really bad at it thing, without fail. Yes. And I think, as we
0: were saying, that when he joined the BBC, he had all those different strands to him, and each one of them has fallen away to only be left with Jonathan Ross, the talk show host. Yes the BBC was probably exactly the right place for him because, with no disrespect to any of the other broadcasters, the BBC has a range that the others don't, not least because there's all the things you could do on radio. Yeah. You can have a mainstream show and you can have a nerdy show on BBC too. You can then have a radio show. And being on the BBC really gave Jonathan Ross the ability to be jonathan ross and the moment he left practically anywhere else he goes he's going to be doing one thing if he'd gone to channel four it might have been still a bit more edgy he chose to go to itv so it's a bit more mainstream but he doesn't get to do any of the other stuff i think that's right part of the reason why ross's show doesn't reach the same height is because he's now in competition for the big name guests with the person i'm talking about in my final pitch
1: oh yeah tell me
0: more The current king of UK chat is Graham Norton, with his eponymous chat show airing on
1: Friday nights on BBC One. So basically he's taken the old Jonathan Ross slot and is now Jonathan Ross's rival in a sort of Jay Leno, David Letterman for the UK. Kind of. They are the two talk shows in competition. Yeah. Now, Norton's talk show career started in
0: 1997. Yeah. Channel 5 launched in 1997 with a late night comedy chat show, The Jack Doherty Show, modelled after Letterman.
1: Yes, one of the UK's many attempts to do a a nightly chat show that never really quite worked.
0: Yeah, I mean, I quite
1: liked it, but it certainly didn't capture an audience. No. Now, when
0: Doherty took some time
1: off, Norton stood in. It was always called Not The Jack Doherty Show when he was off, wasn't it? It
0: was. At the 1997 British Comedy Awards, both Doherty and Norton were up for Best Newcomer for hosting the Jack Doherty Show, (laughs) Norton won. Oh God, how does that feel if you're Jack Doherty? I know. Jack Doherty's show finished shortly afterwards and I don't think you've really heard from him since. No. And this led to Norton getting his own show, So Graham Norton, in 1998 on Channel 4. Yes. This was very much an adult show full of sexual innuendo.
1: Yeah, it was quite near the knuckle and quite shocking sometimes.
0: Yeah, the audience would share embarrassing stories, usually of a sexual nature. Yes. The guests weren't typical talk show guests. They were the sort of people who would play along with the sexual basis of the show. Yeah. And the show ran until March 2002. Mm -hmm. So yeah, good run. And it was replaced by V. Graham Norton. Yes. A five-nightly show in May
1: 2002. Yeah, one of the more successful attempts at doing a 5 nights a week talk show.
0: Yeah, I think
1: it is probably the most successful attempt over here. When it
0: first launched, it did really well. Mm -hmm. It followed a very similar adult format to So, perhaps a little bit less because, you know, you've got to pace it over the course of the week rather than just doing the shocking thing once a week. In summer 2002 it aired after Big Brother. Yeah. That was the year of Jade Goody and Norton got a lot of comedy out of that. Actually, if we're being honest, initially I think some of it was quite brutal. Yeah. Uh, Although he came to like Jade. Yeah. There was almost a symbiotic relationship between the two shows and if you were watching Big Brother, you would certainly tune in to see what Graham Norton was going to say in his monologue even if you didn't stick around for the whole show.
1: There's so much to talk about in the career of Jade Goody, and I'm sure we will come on to reality shows on Cracking TV one day. But yes, that interaction between Big Brother 3 and V. Graham Norton was very symbiotic. And I think Graham Norton's changing perspective on Jade Goody probably also helped to change the public's view of her.
0: I'm sure that's right. Over the course of 2002, even beyond the conclusion of Big Brother 3, Norton's show was it. You know, it was a big thing. But as sort of 2003 rolled around, it sort of began to feel tired's unfair, but perhaps the same shtick every night was beginning to grate. By the time the show finished in December 2003, you sort of didn't really notice it had gone because you'd stopped watching it. Yeah. So, yes, a show that only lasted for 18 months, but for sort of half the run, actually very big. Yeah. After V. Graham Norton, he briefly hosted the Graham Norton Effect on Comedy Central in the US. Right. And then he joined the BBC, but it was on a talent deal rather than to host a particular show. And this sort of attracted a bit of criticism. Why is the BBC signing up Graham Norton, but they don't have anything for him to present yet? Yes. It actually took a while for the BBC to find a format for him. And it turned out that hosting a show on Radio 2, doing Eurovision commentary and a BBC One talk show were the perfect vehicles for him.
1: (laughs) Like there was a playbook from 20 years earlier that could just be brushed off.
0: Isn't it funny how Wogan and Norton's careers sort of reflect each other? Yeah, yeah. Norton's first BBC chat show was the bigger picture in 2005, although arguably that was more of a panel show and the guests discussed the week's news. Yeah. But it was obvious he just needed to be given a show similar to what he'd done on Channel 4. Yeah bit more grown up, but still yeah. an adult show. Yeah. The Graham Norton Show launched on BBC Two in 2007. Yeah. Moved to BBC One in 2009 on Monday nights, but in 2010, once Ross left, it moved to that prestigious Friday night slot.
1: Yeah, it was the, a ready-made replacement for Jonathan Ross, wasn't it? Absolutely.
0: Right place, right time, and he has run with
1: it. Yeah.
0: His BBC show attracts Hollywood A-listers, up to and including Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks being the pinnacle of famous people. He's the top
1: star. He's certainly the top talk show star. He's the person you want to get. Because he's super famous, super successful, but also doesn't take himself massively seriously and you can have a laugh with him. Exactly. Unlike certain other Toms in the Hollywood A-list. Exactly. The
0: Hollywood A-listers will often be sat next to British stars they've never heard of.
1: Yeah, and they'll just be sort of staring up the side of their face like, who the hell is this guy or woman?
0: Yes. Norton gets a lot out of his guests. Yeah. When he appeared on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, he explained how this happens. The dread of any host is that the guest comes on and they give you one-syllable answers and they don't talk well, at see, all. See, now, here's a tip for you, Stephen. What's that? <laughs> what I do is, one, we liquor them up. You offer your
3: well, guests drinks. Yeah. Well, I think, I think, if you come out, if you come out and there's a cocktail waiting for you, you immediately think, this might be a nice time. Now you have multiple people at a
0: time on your well, couch. The benefit is that if one of them is Mr. Monosyllabic, you well, kind of he? go, you, you nap time for him, and then you, you move on, to, and you move on, and hopefully the other ones a chatty Cathy. Multiple guests at once and copious quantities of alcohol leads to a party atmosphere, and the guests talk freely. Yeah. Some guests do take it too far, notably Mark Warburg, who has been clearly drunk on the show on more than one occasion. <laughs> Once he sat on Norton's lap and started to massage his chest. Right. Long way from the gentle knee touch of Parkinson and Wogan.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: The funny stories Norton gets out of his guest are often light years away from what you'd have heard on Parkinson. Yes. Lee Mack told a great story about the first time he did stand-up when he was a blue coat at Pontins. He was told you should just interact with the front row. Ask people where they're from. If someone's from Scotland, say, who paid for your holiday? Uh, yeah. If whales make a noise like a sheep? Yeah, boo. What you're waiting for is for someone to say they're from Kent so you can say, what did you call me?
1: Right, yeah. So I tried it, but I was very drunk.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so I go on stage and I say, where are you from? This bloke says Scotland. I can't remember the joke, (laughs) I say hello, (laughs) then I said to the, where are you from, the guy says
3: Wales, I black out and I go hi, (laughs) I panic,
0: and then I say anyone in from Kent, (laughs) and this bloke shouts out me, (laughs) and I said,
3: well you're a (laughs)
0: what you hear there is obviously the laughter of the audience and it's not just someone's come out and they said something funny it's it's genuinely that an atmosphere has been created where these funny stories can be shared and i think the, the funniness is amplified because of the atmosphere that norton creates yeah Now, Norton isn't afraid to play with his guests. Yeah. When Emma Stone was on, she revealed she was a massive fan of the Spice
3: Girls. Oh,
1: yeah. I thought this was a bit mean. I actually felt really sorry for her. Norton made out they were backstage.
3: What are you telling me? You've never met? Are you going to do do something? Have you never met a Spice
2: Girl? Are you going to do something really? Have you never met a Spice Girl? I'm. Wait. Hold on. I have to mentally prepare
3: myself. (laughs) Have you never met a Spice Girl? Not in the flesh OK. Now, as Don't. you know, as you know, as you know,
0: Emma, it is very rare, it is
3: very rare for more than one Spice Girl to appear together...
0: ..for any reason at all. So, they're not here. Uh, Mean. (laughs) Yeah, if you ever do that with Roland Rat on me, you're dead. (laughs) The person responsible for more adult content on the show than anyone else is, I think, Miriam Margulies.
1: Oh, yeah, she's been excellent, hasn't she?
0: I mean, I think the show has turned her into a national treasure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of her most infamous moments occurred when she was telling a story about a time when she was a student in Cambridge.
1: And I was on my bike and we stopped at the traffic lights and there was a car an open
0: car with an American soldier inside, and something crazy took hold of me then. I said, would you like to follow me
3: to my college and I'll suck you off?
0: <laughs> and he did and she did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At the end of every show, audience members get to sit in Graham's big red chair to tell humorous story. Mm-hmm. If Graham gets bored, he pulls a lever and the chair falls backwards, dumping the hapless audience member from it. Yes. Do you want to have a go at this? I'll judge whether I'm going to tip you out of your chair or not.
1: (laughs) Okay. I was on the Greek island of Kos at a a restaurant which had a special table on the beach. A single table that you could reserve and then sit under the moonlight and, and eat your dinner with the waves lapping up very close to you.
0: Very nice.
1: And it was delicious, fantastic. Mm. And then when it came time to order dessert, I looked on the menu and it said ice cream selection, vanilla, strawberry, chocolate, banana, and mint. Mm. The waitress came to me and said, what would you like for dessert? I said, the ice cream selection, please. And she said, which flavor? And I said, well, all of them, because I assumed... (laughs) The ice cream selection was all of them. Selection of ice creams, yes. So she looked at me like, you want all of them. You want all five ice creams. And I was like, "Uh, yes, please. And I was in too deep now not to keep going. Mm. So she said, okay, and off she went. And then the restaurant manager came round. He was doing a tour of the tables. And he said to me, are you ordering dessert? And I said, yes. And he said, I hope you got the cookie. And I said, no, I didn't. I got the ice cream. And he said, you have to have the cookie. The cookie is the whole reason this restaurant exists. The chef invented this cookie, and that's what made him famous on the island. And then we built the restaurant around it. Everybody has to try the cookie. Right. So I said, okay, I'll change my order. I'll have the cookie. Then a few minutes later, a waiter came out with my five ice creams. Yes. And then another waiter came out with the cookie, which also had another scoop of ice cream on it.
2: Yes,
1: I'm already full from dinner. I've got to eat a big chocolate chip cookie and six scoops of ice cream. Mm. It would be rude to send it back. Yeah. So as I got down to the final couple of spoonfuls, I thought there's physically no space left in my stomach, but I still shoveled it all in. Yes. And then I had to get up from the table run down the beach, and vomit in the sea.
0: Oh, no. 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 <laughs> ah! Norton has been hosting chat shows for 25 years, and Ross for 35.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Really long-running shows, and the presentation styles have evolved. Norton probably in a different direction from Jonathan Ross, where I would say Jonathan Ross has got sillier, but Norton has become more respectable.
0: Yeah. I mean, Norton has toned down the sexual elements of the show which you might not believe having heard <laughs> some of those clips. Yes. But it certainly isn't what it was on Channel 4. And I think the public is more accepting of what you can put on TV these days. You wouldn't have been able to broadcast that Miriam Margulies story on BBC One 20 years ago. Yeah, true. He's created a grown-up, fun atmosphere. Yeah. Now I'm going to conclude my pitch with the comments that Matt Damon made when he summed up appearing on Norton. And if this doesn't sell you the concept of putting Graham Norton on cracking TV, I don't know what will.
3: By the way, this is the best time I've ever had on a talk show.
0: Oh, He's got the Hollywood A-list a seal of approval.
1: You can't argue with that, can you? A very strong pitch for what is a very enjoyable show. You can expect to laugh when you watch an episode of that programme. The guests do seem to enjoy themselves, and I can't think of examples that I've seen of guests being uncomfortable, which is not a thing we can say about most of the other shows we've talked about. No, I think that's right. Okay, well, thank you for your pitches. You're welcome. As is traditional, before I make my decision, I need to check whether you are sufficiently knowledgeable to produce a chat show for Cracking TV, so I've got a few trivia questions for you. Are you ready? Yes. There have been a number of special episodes of Friday Night with Jonathan Ross in which the episode was devoted to a single guest. Can you name one of those specials?
0: Michael Parkinson.
1: Friday Night with Ross and Parkinson is correct. The others were Bowie, Madonna and Streisand. On So Graham Norton, a running gag was Norton's obsession with the star of Tarzan, the Ape Man. Can you name that star? Um... He had a framed photo of him on his desk.
0: Oh, uh, I'm not going to get it, no.
1: That's a tricky one. Miles O'Keefe. Okay. In 2006, Terry Wogan presented a series for UK Gold where he looked back at classic interviews and re-interviewed some of those guests. Yeah. What was that show called?
0: Was it something like Wogan Then and Now?
1: I'm going to let you have it. It was Wogan Now and Then. Oh, okay. Which comedian was a regular warm-up man for Parkinson and later featured Michael Parkinson in a pop video for Comic Relief? Ah, I think that might be um, Peter Kay. It was Peter Kay. And finally, what was the title of Des O'Connor's first single in the UK, which got to number six in the charts? Oh,
0: I know it wasn't, but I'm going to say dick dum dum
1: No, that was his fourth single. It was Careless Hands. Oh, how
0: careless of me not to know.
1: (laughs) Okay, so you got three out of five there, which is, I think, a respectable score. Okay, cool. Good enough. So we come to my decision? Yes. So first of all, you pitched Parkinson. Yeah. I mean, it would be absurd of me not to take it through. It's widely regarded as the classic British chat show. Yeah. Parkinson was a consummate interviewer, not without his flaws.
0: But who isn't?
1: Exactly. As you say, he did manage to ask insightful, well-researched questions, and also he managed to give the interviewee space to answer. There were some absolutely classic moments. Billy Connolly, Muhammad Ali, Rod Hull and EMU. Yes. I am definitely going to be taking Parkinson through to the final two. Excellent. Excellent. After that, you pitched Des O'Connor tonight. Yeah. Let's be honest, it's not happening, is it? I hated that programme. Very insincere, very cheesy, nowhere near as good as Parkinson.
0: I mean, I think you're being slightly unfair to Des. I mean, he did put his guests at ease.
1: Sure, my mum could do that, but she's not a classic chat show host.
0: (laughs) Can you get your mum on now? Because you're not putting me at ease.
1: (laughs) You pitched Friday Night with Jonathan Ross. Yeah. This was a huge show. Yeah. I certainly watched it very often. Certainly there were many moments that I enjoyed. I thought Four Puffs and the Piano were good. Yes. And I thought that format of the guests being backstage but available to Ross via the video screen was quite interesting and uh, often quite entertaining.
0: Yeah, it gave you a different angle, didn't it?
1: Yeah, and he would also have guests that he would have great rapport with. Now, maybe this is just me, but I am the commissioner, so my taste does count. And I now find his style a bit dull. And whilst I was happy enough to watch it back in the day, it's not what I'm looking for on cracking TV now, I'm afraid. Okay. So Jonathan Ross, slightly reluctantly, is ruled out. Okay.
0: And then your final pitch was Graham Norton. Come on, I went big at the end. Can't deny that.
1: Huge show. Huge guests. Huge guests i've said i'm taking parkinson forward so what i'm left with for the second contender is graham norton versus wogan so you know as you say these sort of parallel careers of irish broadcasters with radio two shows chat shows and eurovision commentary
0: yeah wogan or norton someone could invent a feature (laughs) called
1: (laughs) that And uh, last time we put them up against each other was in our Eurovision special and Wogan won out. Yes. On this occasion, I mean, something that does come to mind is your mistreatment of me last time. (laughs) When you came along with Top of the Pops and screwed me over.
0: We're looking for the best shows, right? And last time Top of the Pops was the best show. And if you have to pick between Graham Norton and Terry Wogan's chat show, you're going to pick Graham Norton.
1: I mean, I've also not completely forgotten about the time when you screwed me out of a quarter of a million pounds.
0: (laughs) You need to do what's right for the channel, John.
1: Well, look, I brought Wogan here, so that tells you that I rate the show. Yes. I did mean what I said when I said that Wogan is a great broadcaster.
0: Unquestionably.
1: But I'm going to show you that I am the bigger person. Oh, yeah. I am going to make a decision as a good commissioner. Right. And the show that I'm going to put up against Parkinson is graham norton so i'm getting a commission you are definitely getting a commission congratulations thank you so of those two we've got the much more irreverent graham norton versus the much more standard parkinson and i use the word standard advisedly because parkinson sets the standard for uk tv chat show hosts which everyone will be compared to you will get more laughs watching graham norton you will but you'll get more insight from the guests watching parkinson yeah Ultimately, we are looking for the greatest chat show of all time because that's what Cracking TV is all about. It's the greatest in each genre. Yes. And the answer here is not always the most obvious. But in this particular case, I think it is. I think when you're looking for the greatest chat show host of all time in the UK, to look beyond Parkinson is ultimately futile. And so the commission goes to Parkinson. Wow, thank you very much. Well done. It was a strong set of shows that you brought in. You started very strong. You never really improved from there. (laughs) I'll take that as a compliment. You know what? Parkinson's the best, so why try harder? Yeah, absolutely. So that was Chat Shows on Cracking TV. It was produced and presented by me, John Furlong, and the successful pitcher, Luke Sluman. Our rather marvellous theme tune was written and performed by Simon McInerney. Luke and John Cracking TV is an iHog factual entertainment production.
2: It's time to change the channel to Luke and John Cracking TV.
3: Luke and John Cracking TV. If you were me, what would you do now?
2: Well, just wrap it up.